Father, it is our prayer that you would take us and that you would raise our hope and that you would help us place it in you. Father, we may have many questions and we have many concerns, but may you stir us to hope and faith. Father, as we come to the preaching of your word, may your spirit stir us and move us as we place our hope in you. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. If you have a copy of God's Word around you, and I hope you do, please open your Bible to the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is the fifth to last book of the Old Testament. It's famous for being the book of the Bible with the most K's in its name, if you're into Bible trivia. If you have one of these Bibles around you, one of these black Bibles in a pew in the seat in front of you behind, you can find Habakkuk in our text on page 737. Um, this morning. This morning we'll be considering Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, which will take us to the end of our sermon series in Habakkuk. By way of introduction, we are returning to Habakkuk for the final time, at least for this time. And it's important to remember that Habakkuk is fundamentally a book about faith. You could subtitle the book of Habakkuk, Faith in the Face of Affliction. How do we as God's people How do we as Christians who believe the promises of God, who believe great theology, how do we take this faith and move it into a faith that stands as we face affliction, as we face trials, and as we face suffering? Now up until this point, we've actually sat in the audience to this conflict and conversation between Habakkuk and God. At one point, Habakkuk was throwing rebukes up at God because of the wickedness of Israel and because of the approaching Babylonian invasion. But God showed Habakkuk a very important principle, that God's people, the righteous, will live by faith. And having accepted this reality in our final passage, Habakkuk actually turns his direction away from the Babylonians and what's coming to a different group of people, the faithful remnant in Judah. Habakkuk has seen God's plan. Now he wants to help the Babylonians, uh, help the faithful remnant prepare for the Babylonians. Habakkuk has completed a journey of faith, a journey that every faithful Israelite must walk. Each one has to wrestle with everything that Habakkuk has wrestled with. Each one has to think about the suffering, about the worry, about the fear. The people of Israel will need encouragement if they will persevere through trials and affliction. So the prophet wants to give God's people one final message. And this message can be summarized by a single word. Hope. Hope. Whenever we enter into times of affliction or testing, there are many things that will help us get to the end, right? Maybe it's the comfort of community or us finding solace in God. Many times, though, there's one gift that we actually can give one another that helps us persevere, and it's the gift of hope. Whenever we enter into these times, the thoughts of persevering to the end, the thought of hope on the other side, helps us to strengthen ourselves through suffering. It is through hope that we can plant our feet, that we can be strengthened, and we can bear up the weight 
of suffering because we know that the end is coming. But remember that Habakkuk is not just a spokesman for the people of Judah. He is a spokesman for all of God's people who throughout the ages have had to wrestle with questions about suffering and God's sovereignty. And so Habakkuk's message then is not just for the people back then. It is a message for us. And so I want to give you this final point as we've been walking through how to have faith in the face of affliction. Our final point today, if we talk about what we've walked through, first we've learned to address God, and we've talked about embracing God, and third we've talked about examining your heart, fourth we've talked about reassessing your concerns, and finally if you want to have faith in the face of affliction, you must hope in God's salvation. Hope in God's salvation. And in our section for this chapter, Habakkuk stirs the people of God to hope in God's promises of salvation and deliverance. And to help God's people hope in salvation, Habakkuk presents a vision of hope. A vision of hope. If you remember from last week's sermon, the preceding verses had a picture of a funeral. We had talked about the interesting question of who the funeral was for. It's actually for Habakkuk's enemies. It's for those who are enemies of God's people. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, the survivors of the Babylonian conquest are gloating over their oppressors. They are casting woes against them. And if you remember, this vision ends with God sitting in his temple, waiting, waiting for judgment. Habakkuk 2.20 reads, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Chapter 3 begins with another vision of the Lord in his temple, but now the Lord ascends from his throne. The Lord leaves his temple and he descends to earth. So in our vision of hope, the first picture that we see is that the Lord descends. The Lord descends. Follow along in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 5 with me. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was, filled, was full of its praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. In this picture, God descends from his throne um, to two locations that we can point out to. The first one is Temen, and the second one is Mount Paran. These are two places that are actually east of the land of Eden. If you look at it, it would have been right around in this area. So if you know about the land of Israel, the Babylonians would have come from the north because of the desert around here. The Lord actually plants himself in this area to come up from the other side. So it's directly southeast in the desert of Judah. God's descent is marked by a vibrant display of God's glory. We see this in verse 3 of chapter 3. Habakkuk records God's splendor covering the heavens. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 4 talks about the brightness of God's light and rays coming from his hands. 
The word for, for ray in verse 4 is also the word for horn, such as a ram's horn or a goat's horn. In biblical literature, if you know, the picture of horns are pictures of power and might. So as God is descending, verse 4 is telling us that rays and power are streaming from God's hands. And God's glory is so great that he actually consciously control and consciously conceal his power or his glory would overwhelm those who are around him. But in verse 5, we start to begin to see why God is coming. We start to see that God is coming to judge. Here we read of pestilences and we read of plagues in verse 5. And if you guys know your Bibles, the language of pestilences and plagues may hearken back to Exodus when God came down to judge and he was having plagues descending from him on the land of Egypt. In this earlier section of Habakkuk, we've talked about Habakkuk had put God on trial. Habakkuk was rebuking God, questioning God's plan and character. Habakkuk was the prosecutor. God was in the stand. And finally, God puts everything back in its place, and the Lord steps into the role of judge. Our next point, the Lord condemns, verses 6 and 7. The Lord condemns. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. We begin in verse 6. We see that the Lord stands and measures the earth. What does that mean? Measurement is an apocalyptical way of talking about judgment. If God is going to measure someone, he is holding up their lives to an external standard. God's law. So as God measures the nations, whenever he sees deviation in thought, in word and deed, his condemnation goes out, that we are guilty. When God measures the nations, what does he see? Sin, injustice. What is God's pronouncement? Judgment. We see that in verses six through seven. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. In verse 6, Habakkuk uses the language of God destabilizing creation. You see these things? He is breaking eternal mountains. He is sinking hills. He is using this language to show the magnitude of God's judgment. These visions help us see that God's judgment will occur on a global or a cosmic scale. His justice will extend to every nation across the globe with such a magnitude that creation itself will recoil. In Habakkuk 3.7, we see two references to Cushan and the land of Midian. Both of these are most likely referring to pictures from the book of Judges. 
Cushion most likely refers to the king of Mesopotamia that you can find in Judges 3, verses 8 through 11, if you want to write that down for later. In Judges 3, verses 8 through 11. In the land of Midian, of course, refers to the story of, of Gideon. When Gideon, in a single night, destroys the armies that are coming against God's people. Both of these passages and these references should cause our stomachs to harden. If you think about it, in both of these pictures in the book of Judges, God destroyed large armies and nations. Poof. But in our vision, God is judging every single nation, every single rebellious sinner. The revelation of God's wrath will not be local like in these two stories in the book of Judges. It will be global towards the full number of every person's sin. Guys, remember from our sermon last week on why the Lord would come to judge and why the woes would come? Habakkuk 2, 17. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What do you think that this judgment will look like? What do you think it's going to look like when in one moment the Lord descends and he judges every single person in rebellion against him? If, we, if these small pictures of thousands and thousands of people being slaughtered in judgment, and the earth shakes, what are we, what are we looking forward to? What's coming? In Habakkuk 3, 8 through 11, the Lord advances. The Lord advances. Having condemned the nations, the Lord transitions now from judge to punisher. And as God advances towards his enemies, his glory becomes more and more pronounced. Habakkuk 3, 8. Was your wrath against the river, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? when you rode on your horses and on your, the chariot of salvation? Habakkuk asked these questions to magnify the scope of God's judgment. As God approaches his throne, as, as God approaches his foes, God's power begins to overwhelm the natural world around him. The author is literally watching God up end rivers and oceans, and he's asking respectfully, what did that river do to you? Why? Because God's power is so great in judgment that earth itself cannot stand. So this picture only underscores the sheer glory and power of God. Verse 9. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. God bears his weapon of war, his bow. As God starts literally calling creation for arrows, you must ask the question, like what tree is big enough to serve as an arrow for God's bow? But then you realize that God is literally searching for elements of creation that he's planning on using in judgment. And these aspects continue of this corporate global judgment in verses 10 through 11. As God's glory continues to magnify itself as he approaches his enemies, verse 10 and 11, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. 
It lifted its hand on high. The earth and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. And then in verses 12 to 15, Habakkuk finally witnesses his heart's request. If you remember, the book of Habakkuk began with God calling, or Habakkuk calling upon God to judge the people, to act for the sake of his people. What do we see here? Finally, the Lord is judging. He is fulfilling Habakkuk's request. We see in this fifth and this fourth picture, the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. In verse 13, we see the reason for God's judgment, and this should cause every Christian's heart to swell. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Because God left his throne with one mission, to save you. In this vision, God brings salvation through judgment. God saves his people through judging his people's enemies. God delivers the faithful by crushing the head of the house of the wicked. Now that reference, the head of the house of the wicked, most likely refers to either one particular ruler or leader or head of an enemy army. And as we know, if the leader falls, if the general falls, the people scatter. In verse 14, we see God using his own enemy's weapons against them. Imagine an archer who's trying to fire an arrow, and someone from the other side finds it and brings down the archer with it. In verse 15, we see another reference to judgment in the image of horses and water. This reference harkens back to another great picture of salvation, doesn't it? What do you think of when you hear horses and water? Exodus, the armies of Egypt and the waters coming upon them. But now the Lord is the one who is riding upon the waters. And this imagery from Exodus is actually very helpful because it shows us that what we see here is another salvation event. So in summary, this passage describes a future and final event where God will descend from his throne and save his people by finally executing judgment upon every nation and every sinner. Now, how would this picture help the people of Judah have hope? Well, what do the people of Judah know? Suffering is coming. Babylonians are coming. 
But what this vision of hope did is that it gave them the ability to look past the Babylonians. The Babylonians would bring harm. They would bring pain. But this faithful remnant now sees the day of salvation. And they know that God one day will come and save. As the Babylonians approached, you know, they started terrorizing little villages of Judah and peoples and families. The remnant of faith would persevere with this promise of hope. They would remind themselves, God will come. God will save. God will save. So that's how this passage would help the people of Judah. What about us? I think that we see that this passage helps us because this is actually a picture of the gospel. From approximately 600 BC, Habakkuk saw a future day of salvation coming. Though we actually, from our vantage point, knows that Habakkuk is seeing two separate events. And one of these events has already occurred, hasn't it? In both of these events, God would descend and God would save his people. But in the first event, God didn't descend with clouds and didn't descend with glory. He came as a humble servant born to a teenage girl. And from the book of Isaiah, we see a prophecy saying that Jesus or he had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. But Jesus came, as Matthew records in his gospel, to save God's people. But he didn't first come to save God's people from their physical enemies. God first, Jesus first came to save his people from the enemies of sin, the enemies of death, and the enemy of the serpent. How would Jesus save God's people? Through judging our enemies. How does Jesus defeat sin? How does Jesus defeat death? How does Jesus defeat Satan? In an interesting twist, Habakkuk actually gives us a vision of how Jesus would do this in Habakkuk 3.14. You pierced with his own arrows the head of his warriors. You pierced with his own arrows. So think about it. To bring Satan down, Jesus actually set his eyes on Satan's greatest weapons, sin and death. Because sin's clutches and the fear of death has held every human being captive who's ever lived. So Jesus knew that to free humanity, he would have to defeat sin and sin's dominion. Well, how would he do that? Jesus would settle the debt that every human being owes God because of sin. Jesus needed to break the power of sin and death over God's people. So how does Jesus satisfy our debt? How would he break death's power? Through piercing Satan with his own arrow by going to the cross. Jesus himself would die to defeat death. 
Jesus used the requirements of sin and death against Satan to destroy him and his rule and set his people free. Jesus fell under the condemnation of sin, right? Which is death. But for the first time in human history, a righteous person died. And sin couldn't hold him. Jesus himself had no sins to die for. And so since where death only reigns where there is sin, for the first time in history, the check didn't cash. The scan didn't scan him. Because Jesus died and he was righteous. And so death's vice grip on humanity slipped. For a righteous person died and death had no claims on him. But through Jesus' death, he functioned as his own high priest of his own sacrifice. And through offering himself and his eternal blood, he paid for the sins of every single person who would one day come and trust in him. And by faith, we are united to Jesus both in his death and in his life. The debt of our sin by faith has been cleared. Death's grip on us is now broken, and the same power that crept into a Judean tomb 2,000 years ago now lives in us and is transforming us into Christ's image. One day, Jesus will come back, and he will raise us to eternal life with him forever. Death's hand might grab us, for a time, but its grip will slip. So Satan must have been absolutely thrilled when he had Jesus at the cross. He must have been gloating as Jesus' strength was waning. Finally! Victory! I got him! But Jesus pierced the head of his enemy with his own arrows. Jesus stripped Satan of his power and authority over creation by making sin and death obsolete in view of eternity. And this was God's plan all along. Through the gospel, we can understand what Habakkuk is saying here in Habakkuk 3, that one day that he will crush the head of the house of the wicked. Because you know why? That was a promise that God made a long time ago. Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and your offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And as we talked about last week, because Jesus fell into all these broken systems and structures, he's coming back with a vengeance. And this picture of Habakkuk in its full glory describes that final day when Jesus will return, and he will complete the salvation for his people. So friends, What vision is going to help you persevere through trials and affliction and suffering? What will bring you hope? Because this vision that Habakkuk sees, we have seen in part, and we can hope in this same picture because we already know that the first act has been completed. And God will finish what he started. So friend, as you think about your faith, as you think about faith in the face of affliction, persevere for God.
God will complete what he started. Sin's hold is gone. Death has been, has had its fangs removed. And one day, every threat, fear, and concern you have will be put under Christ. He has, Christ has saved us from the power and the penalty of sin and the fear of death. And one day, he will save you from the presence of sin and every fear that you face. So if your faith is going to persevere through trials and afflictions, you must cultivate this hope, this hope in this vision of God's salvation. How do you do this? How do you cultivate this hope in God's salvation? Well, you first do this by actively meditating upon passages like this that give us pictures of God's salvation. Like Habakkuk, we stir our faith by constantly remembering the promise of the gospel and the hope of Christ. I wonder how Habakkuk's life, the rest of his life must have been after having this vision. How often did he return to it? How often did he stir his mind to remember these things? But second, you must also analyze your life and try to figure out and identify other hopes you may have that actually want to rival this one. Because if we understand what Scripture teaches about hopes, our hopes are tied to what we most treasure in life. Our hopes are tied to our desires and to our wishes. Our hopes are connected to our treasures. What you most value. What you most want in life. Hopes are desires that are future-oriented. Or they are treasures that we hide in the future. So in your life, start asking yourself, what do I treasure? What am I hoping will happen? What are you trusting in? Are you hoping to maintain a certain lifestyle or a certain career path? Are you hoping and trusting in always having your health? Always having friends, influence, family? That you will avoid persecution? That you will avoid suffering? Now, none of these things are inherently bad. These are good things to want, right? It's not wrong to want to avoid suffering. If you, if you wanted to jump into suffering, that's another conversation. But here's where we get in trouble, is how important are these desires to you? How important are your hopes? If something that you treasure is at risk of being lost, how do you respond? Do you respond sinfully? Or do you respond sinfully to protect the things that you treasure? Because here's another hope from this passage, that the only object that is worthy of your ultimate hope is this promise of salvation. And if your heart is being ruled by rival hopes, all that you're doing is setting yourself up for spiritual shipwreck. Well, well how? Because misplaced hopes will always sabotage your faith. If there is a hope 
or a treasure or a desire which is rivaling to, or trying to overtake your hope in the promises of God's salvation. You know what Satan has to do? Just go after that. He doesn't have to confront your faith head on. All he has to do is sabotage your treasures and you'll do the rest of the work yourself. Because Christians who persevere to the end only have this grounded and established hope that no matter what, whether in life or in death, they're hoping in God's salvation. Christians through the ages have confessed this reality in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, you may be familiar with this. What is your only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Is that your only hope? Are there some conditional clauses in that? And this reality is attested to all throughout Scripture. Another place we can go to is 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, which you read earlier. You guys are probably familiar with it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept where? Where? In heaven. For you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. What is Peter saying here? If you are a Christian, your hope is in Christ and he is in heaven. If he is in heaven and he has defeated death, can anything touch him? No. Peter also says that we have an inheritance which is in heaven. Do you see those three words in there? It is imperishable. It is undefiled. It is unfading. And your imperishable, undefiled, and unfading treasures are also in heaven. Can anything touch that? Can death touch your future inheritance? Can Satan? Can Babylonians? No. What about all these other things that we hope in? Is your wealth unfading? Is your career or successes undefiled? Or are they? Is your family imperishable? Is your health unperishable? So tell me, if I want to be wise according to Scripture, where should I place my ultimate hopes? On the imperishable promises of God and everything in heaven for me? Or should I place it in this world where moth and rust, and Babylon destroy. Here's the bottom line, guys. That Babylonians can only touch your hope if you leave your hope in reach of Babylonians. And they can only capsize your faith if you're leaving things around them. I call it the toddler principle. You guys know what it's like? You can touch this. I'm putting that up there, right? Do we do that with our hopes? 
Can rust Babylonians touch them? Here's another example. I love this question. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Interesting question. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Now, to help us understand this question, let me make it look a little different. What can separate you from your job? (laughs) Lots of things. I can get fired, you know, my, my health, stock market, you know. What about your family? Illness, death again, mistakes, sinful people. What about your lifestyle? Your 401k and savings account? Your platform? You keep going through these things, well, well, a lot, yeah? That, that can separate it, that can separate it. Now go back. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Nothing. Romans 8, 38 through 39. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I don't see that with my health. A lot of things can separate me from that. But nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. If I can be separated from all these things in life, but I can't be separated from my hope in God and salvation, so then where should I put my hope? Up there or down here? Where should my comfort rest? Because here's the bottom line, that your, the longevity of your faith will be determined by your hopes. If your hope is remained set on Christ and God's promises of salvation, then you will endure. But if your hope has other foundations, friend, your faith is just one bad storm away from disaster. As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than good. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is. Got it. Now as individuals, we recognize that we each have a responsibility to analyze our hopes, and we want to dethrone the ones that are trying to challenge the hope of salvation. But as a church, we actually have a responsibility to encourage one another to hope in God, because this text is also a call to hope, a call to hope. Which is really interesting because at the beginning of the chapter, the section is actually a song. Go back to Habakkuk 3.1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. According to the Shigianoth. What's, what's that mean? Well, that actually means that Habakkuk wrote this for a musical accompaniment. So Habakkuk wrote this prophecy to be sung among God's people. And through the singing of God's word and of this prophecy, God's people would have their hearts set on the future promises, that they would direct their attention towards hope in God's salvation. We also see in verse 2 that Habakkuk has a particular concern for the faith of the righteous remnant in Israel. Look at Habakkuk 3.2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. 
In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk's prayer begins with a recognition of God's plan. He has heard of the report. He has seen and he fears. He reveres what's coming. But after hearing God's plan, his head turns immediately towards larger community. In Habakkuk 3.2, we see that phrase, in the midst of years. What does that refer to? Well, in the book of Habakkuk, we actually see two major events. We see the destruction of God's people by the Babylonians, and then we see God's salvation of his people through judgment. Habakkuk is praying for those who live in between those two, two events. Those who live in between those two years. In between the destruction of Judah and the God's coming salvation. And then in verse 2, it contains three requests from Habakkuk to God. Now the Hebrew here is a little, is a little difficult. And the second half of the verse isn't very clear. But if you look at verse 2, each of those requests end with an it. It's better translated actually as a him. So let, this, let me clean this up for you a little bit. In the midst of years, revive him. Give him life. In the midst of years, make him understand. In wrath, remember mercy. What's Habakkuk's prayer? God, you are just in your judgments. We deserve your discipline. Your people are going to face suffering. We are going to be afflicted. But in your judgments, O Lord, please sustain them. Please give them life. Please help him to live. In the midst of years between judgment and salvation, God, make your people understand what you are doing. And as we are disciplined, God, may you help us. May you have mercy upon us. So what do we take away from this? That Habakkuk here serves as a model for how we as a church need to call one another to hope in God's salvation. We must pray prayers like this one as we face affliction and as we try to have faith. Father, in the midst of suffering as we wait for your son to return, Father, revive my brother. Father, in in this time, help my sister to understand. God, have mercy on us. But here Habakkuk also shows us that hope is a community project. If we are going to survive as Harbin's Community Baptist Church, we must have faith together. We must embrace God's sovereignty together. We must uproot pride together. We must reassess our concerns together, and we must have hope together. Friend, you cultivating your faith in the face of affliction is not solely for you, but it's also for others. And please hear me. There are people in this room, and there are people on that live stream who needs your encouragement. They need your message of hope. And if your sister or your brother needs to hear your message of hope, 
and you aren't hoping in Christ, then who's going to encourage her? Who is going to strengthen that brother? Hope is always a community project. If you're a member of Harvard Smith Baptist Church, I have a question for you. What has our church communicated to the world over the past few months? How have we been responding to these very strange times? COVID-19, riots, politics, you know, Kanye West running for president again. What has the world seen in our conversations? What has the world seen in our posts? What has the world seen in our demeanor? And if we were absolutely honest with ourselves, if the world has looked at us, has, has the world seen a people who have hope? Do our responses to our present circumstances reveal to the world that we're hoping in Christ or that we're just hoping in what everyone else is hoping in? Because if our hope is in Christ, then our response should be supernatural so that people would stop us and ask, why aren't you responding like everyone else? Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you consumed with fear and worry? Why aren't you just slandering and backbiting? It's what everyone else is doing. And if the world has seen sinful responses of outbursts of anger or worry or sorrow, what do you think they've concluded about what we're hoping in? Because friends, Barrow and Gwinnett County do not need more backseat political commentators. I probably could find someone who says your view better than you. Better than me, all right? They don't need more amateur public health experts. <laughs> no one has any idea what they're talking about anyways. But the world needs something that only we can offer. And that's hope. That's hope in the gospel. So when trials and afflictions come our way in the future, because they will, and as the world looks to Harbin's Community Baptist Church, what will they see? Will they see a people who have hope? Will they see a people who have faith? And with that, we've come to the end of Habakkuk. He's changed a little bit, hasn't he? The one who is self-consumed with his perspectives, his confidence, and then the one who is tossing rhetorical grenades at God, he's been humbled. He's spending less time thinking about how things are going to impact him, and now he's focused on helping others have faith. He wants those around him to place their hope in God's salvation. And the book of Habakkuk concludes with a portrait of faith. Habakkuk get, uh, ends by giving us a picture of what the man of faith looks like. Habakkuk, who heard the message of the righteous shall live by faith, now models it. And he gives us a helpful vision, which I think is helpful for us. You know, if I go through these steps right, if I follow Habakkuk's journey... If I address God, embrace God, examine my heart, reassess my concerns, then what should life look like? Let me give you two quick final thoughts in summary on Habakkuk. The first thing we see is we see a solemn acceptance. 
a solemn acceptance. In Habakkuk 3.16, Habakkuk reflects upon his whole experience of the events recorded in the book. He has heard of the approaching Babylonian armies and about the promise of God's salvation. And we have seen that Habakkuk has a solemn acceptance of his circumstances. He has a sober realism of the challenges coming his way. Habakkuk 3.16, I hear my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble within me. So what does Habakkuk, what's his response to the news of Babylonians, of suffering? It might surprise you. His body is literally shaking. His legs are weak. When we think of the man of faith, sometimes we have this picture of this man who's, who's confident, calm, cool, and collected. Nothing faces him. Stares trouble in the face and eats danger for breakfast, right? That's not actually Habakkuk here. Habakkuk is, has a very sober realism to what's going to happen. The Babylonians are only years away at this point, and this news literally shakes his body. He can't stand up when he thinks about everything that's going to happen. But Habakkuk has resolved to trust God no matter what. Verse 16 again. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Here, Habakkuk demonstrates the difference between sinful anxiety and worry and godly concern and faith. Sinful anxiety looks at danger and trials and becomes consumed. Those who have faith look at the same things. They come to terms with the challenging realities, but then they submit them to God. Sinful worry circulates within the self. What's going to happen? How am I going to solve this? What's coming next? Biblical faith takes legitimate concerns to the throne of God. This is going to hurt. I don't like it. But I will trust you. I hope you see that this is very helpful because it shows that biblical faith doesn't conflict with strong reactions or physical emotions or emotion reactions. Here, Habakkuk's body is literally shaking to the core. It doesn't mean that Habakkuk is having faith. It means that Habakkuk fully understands what is coming his way. But we know that Habakkuk's response is a response of faith because every single concern ends in the arms of God. If you have strong emotional reactions... Which, to things which warrant strong emotional reactions, to things coming your way. It's not that you, you lack faith. What's more important is that where are you funneling that concern? Do your, does your faith in the face of affliction turn legitimate concerns into prayers of faith and trust? And here's the second thing that we see in closing, an active trust. An active trust. In the final verses, Habakkuk has completed his journey. And God called Habakkuk to live a life of faith, and he has become a man of faith. And his next statement encapsulates his transformation. Habakkuk 3, 17 to 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vine, 
the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut short from the fold. And there is to be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Before, Habakkuk was questioning how God will let all these things happen to his life. Now he's resigned everything away. Will all these different things be taken from me? I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk has set his hope, his only hope, on God. He has found his anchor. He has come to trust the one who will keep him to the end. And now, he can stand for the day of trouble. His feet are ready. Even with the dangerous places that the Lord may lead him, no matter what he face, whatever he faces, he will be able to climb above him, above them. The image of deer, their feet on the high places. Will he stumble? Yeah. Will he fear? Yeah. Will it hurt? Yeah. But Habakkuk has learned to walk the path of faith. And he has trained himself whenever he wants to despair, where he wants to go, he knows where to go. And now we must ask, what about us? Habakkuk has come to learn to trust in God. Have you? Has Harbin's Community Baptist Church? We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know about the future, aren't there? Who knows when COVID-19 is going to go away? What's going to happen with elections and cycles and Christianity, North America? But here's what we know. Christ has crushed the head of our enemies. Jesus right now is in his holy temple. He knows every single thing going on in your life. And one day, he will return to finally deliver you from every threat, every fear, and every danger. But like with the Babylonians in Habakkuk, every trial that we face, we have to recognize that God's allowing it because he's training us to trust. He's training us to see whether we will live by faith. For the righteous live by faith. Will we? Will we demonstrate that righteousness is in our hearts through a life of active trust? Maybe if you're honest, you're, you're not in a good place right now. You haven't been trusting him. Maybe you need to refocus your hopes. Or maybe you're thinking, have I actually ever walked this path? I have some head knowledge, but has it gone into my heart? Am I actively trusting in God? And friend, if that's you, Christ is ready to receive you. Come to him. Bring your concerns and trust him. At the end of the day, our confidence isn't actually in our ability to trust, but it's in the one who saved us and the one who crushed the head of our enemies. So, address God. Embrace God. Examine your heart. Reassess your concerns. And then use your hope in Christ to stand firm in the face of affliction. For Christ is our only hope in life and death.
Let's pray. Father, there are many things that we don't know about the future, but what we need to know, we do know, that you are our God, you are our salvation, our salvation, and you will save us. Father, I, I, there are so many people here in different places right now. Father, I ask that whatever people have heard, that it would lead to a deeper and active dependence and trust. Father, may we leave here with a greater vision just of your salvation and hope. Father, may we look to Christ as the one who has conquered every fear and every enemy. And Father, may we be a community that calls one another to hope. Father, we thank you for this hope. May you confirm it in our hearts. Amen.